Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. Well, let's go ahead and get started with prayer. Well, God, you are awesome. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the plan that you have for us. And thank you that you chose us to be alive in this time. Thank you that you've equipped us to be ambassadors for you. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here and anywhere where anyone is listening. We just invite your presence and we thank you that you're ministering a word to each one of us right where we're at. So Lord, go beyond my words. And I just thank you for this opportunity to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at whether or not a born-again believer can lose their salvation. So let me just say this right out of the gate. First, I am not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't believe. Okay, I am simply showing you what I see in the word and what I believe to be true. And that's why this message is entitled, Can I Lose My Salvation? You Decide. Because at the end of the day, it's important what you believe, not what I believe, your pastor believes, or anything like that. Because when you stand before Jesus, it's not going to matter what everybody around you believed. It's going to matter what you believe. Now, when you look at this subject, there are typically three beliefs out there. And there could be more, but I'm just aware of three. One is that someone can never lose their right standing with God after they've had a genuine born-again experience. And that's otherwise known as once saved, always saved. Okay, and that's how I'm going to be referring to it today. Another is the group that believe that someone can lose their salvation. And the third are those that believe you can lose your salvation, then get it back. Lose your salvation, then get it back. You know, so on and so forth. Now, to be respectful of your time, I want to tell you where I stand right out of the gate. I believe that someone can lose their salvation, but here it is, but it is very difficult to do so. Now, with saying that, I'm not saying that someone can just, quote unquote, do a bunch of sin or, quote unquote, you know, sin willfully, you know, that that phrase, sin willfully gets thrown around, and as a result of that, lose their salvation, okay? I am not saying that. My belief with how someone can lose their salvation is it's not a situation where it can just accidentally happen. You know, like where someone misplaces their keys and now they're lost. You know, it's it's not something like that. It's not an accident. So again, I believe someone can lose their salvation, but it's very difficult to do so. And you know what? If you don't believe that, it's all good. Um, this is kind of meant to be a funny, but if you believe that we're once saved, always saved, then if you really think about it, What's the big deal if I'm believing incorrectly? (laughs) Because if I'm wrong and we don't lose our salvation, then it really doesn't matter what I believe because I can't lose it anyways. (laughs) It'd be similar to how today society has adopted this idea of like coexist, you know, that, that all paths lead to heaven, you know, whether it be Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, or I don't even know if those are all the same, but anyways, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter what you believe because the truth is, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. So whether or not you want to believe that or not, you are entitled to that. But it doesn't change the fact of what's true. Or, you know, another thing today is how society has tried to say that there's a bazillion genders out there. Well, no, God made them male and female. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe you're a cat, and I'm not saying that to be insensitive. I'm just saying, like, it, you have every right to believe that, but it doesn't change the fact that the truth is the truth. 
Likewise, again, if you believe in once saved, always saved, what's it matter if I'm wrong in what I believe? Because it's not like it changes my eternal destiny anyways. So if you don't agree with what I share today, just chalk it up to Jasonology and that I've been deceived. And you know what? I would suggest praying for me that I'll gain understanding and that the Holy Spirit will direct me back to the truth. But even if you disagree with my interpretation of the scripture, I still believe it can be beneficial to keep on listening. And why is that? Well, that's because if what I shared doesn't cause you to look at what you believe differently, then what it'll do is it'll sure up what you already believe. So either your stance is going to change because of what I show you through the word today, or you'll have a stronger foundation with what you already believe. So it's all good. Now, as we get into this, I'm obviously taking the time to talk about this subject, you know, because it's a part of the Bible and you're, you're hearing it on this podcast. Okay. So yes, it's good to know what we believe as well as to be able to defend why we believe what we believe. Now, that being said, let me be clear. I am not saying it's wrong to study out if someone can lose their salvation, but my opinion is that this isn't something believers need to be spending massive amounts of time on, studying and studying it, debating it, even getting into arguments with other believers about who's right and who's wrong, okay? And why do I say that? Well, I believe there are five or six things, give or take, that are what we would call non-negotiables for a believer. What I'm saying is, out of this core five or six things, give or take, Those are the things that you absolutely don't move on. And past that, I believe there are a lot of topics out there where people attempt to make majors out of minors. And what they do is they throw out unity in the body of Christ. You know, just because you don't see things the way I do with my interpretation of scripture, I can't be around you or I don't want any part of your life. It shouldn't be that way. Now, don't get me wrong. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But all I'm saying is that we don't need to argue with other believers every single little detail like we're starting to be on Bible Jeopardy one day. Okay, so... Hopefully you understand what I'm saying. I'm not calling the other subjects past these five or six unimportant. They're absolutely crucial. And past these five or six topics are really going to help us grow into maturity. But all I'm trying to say is that here are five or six non-negotiables that we just absolutely don't budge on. The first one, that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, and along in this still number one is that he's the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He's the one prophesied about. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Okay, that's number one. That is a non-negotiable. Okay, number two, he was born from a virgin. If Mary wasn't a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, then that would mess up a lot of things in the Old Testament, how he was prophesied about. It would mess up a lot of things, how Jesus didn't come from a person, a man's seed, but he is God. There's just all sorts of stuff. In there that that would mess up so that is a non-negotiable number three jesus never sinned okay he was the spotless lamb absolutely that is a non-negotiable number four he died for our sins in place of us to bring restoration and number five 
Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. So those are five things I believe every born-again believer can and should agree on. And again, there could be more than that. And I'll probably hear another one in the next couple days and think, you know, (laughs) duh, why didn't I say that one? You know, even something like the rapture, how Jesus will return for the catching away of the church, I believe that is super important, okay? Like if this were a tier system or whatever it's called, those five non-negotiables that I just mentioned would be like on tier one. And understanding the rapture, although it's super important and it brings us the hope that we'll one day see Jesus again, where I'm at in my understanding, I'd say that's like a tier two thing, you know, maybe even like a tier one B, you know, I, I don't know. But my point in saying that is that this topic of can I lose my salvation, I believe it's really important to have some general understanding about it, but I definitely wouldn't put it in the category of a non-negotiable, okay? I'd put it in like a tier four or five, okay? And you can disagree with me. I mean, please don't throw out everything I'm saying if you don't agree with that. But all I'm trying to say is is that this topic of can I lose my salvation is that it's not worth the strife and the division that it's produced among believers today. (laughs) So all that being said, let's go ahead and hop right into this. Again, I do believe someone can lose their salvation, but it's very difficult to do so. It's not an accident like how someone loses their keys like whoopsie daisy, you know, I, I lost my salvation. No. Someone losing their salvation is something done very intentional. And, you know, I'll throw a little phrase out there and I don't even fully agree with the way that it kind of comes across. But let me just say this to kind of put some of your minds at ease. If you find yourself listening to this and you've genuinely accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, okay, you've had a heart transformation and the Holy Spirit has now come and made his home in you. And you're thinking, I wonder if I've lost my salvation. I can assure you, (laughs) you haven't. Because if someone did lose their salvation, they wouldn't care even a little bit if they had it or not. So hopefully that helps someone out there. Or at the very least, if you run into someone who asks you if you think that they've lost their salvation, you can tell them, you know, the fact that you even care if you've lost your salvation is proof that you haven't. So again, I believe someone can lose their salvation, but it's very difficult. So we're going to start off by looking at Hebrews 6. But before we read Hebrews 6, something that gets brought up is that the book of Hebrews is being written to Jewish people. And that is absolutely true. However, something important to understand is that these are born-again Jews. Okay, They've already put their faith in Jesus. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So why am I mentioning this? It's because this book doesn't need to be looked at in the same light as, say, like the Gospels, where although they were written about Jesus, the old covenant was still in effect. In the Gospels, Jesus hadn't been killed and resurrected yet, so the Jews were still under law, and Jesus, although he is grace, and he showed it throughout his lifetime, he lived under the law and he fulfilled it. So, even though this is written to Jewish people, 
the fact is it's written to Jewish believers, which because in the spirit, when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. We're all a part of the body of Christ. Now, after understanding that, what we see is that the writer is explaining to the Jewish believers the superiority of Christ over the law. He's encouraging them that even though they're right in the middle of suffering severe persecution, that they shouldn't waver in their faith and turn back to the old way of doing things. So yes, in Hebrews, it talks about how things were done under the old covenant, but now that Christ has come, they should continue on unto perfection. Now, the truth is, today, this is still an issue with born-again believers. I'm not going to go into great depth on this, but there's a large portion of the body of Christ who still believe they're to live according to the law. Okay, And that includes the Ten Commandments. But that is just not true. We're no longer under law. We're under grace. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 5.18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 1 Corinthians 15.56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7 says that the new covenant is of the spirit and that the letter, okay, and that's referring to the law, that it kills, but the spirit that you and I have now, he gives life. And then it goes on to say, if you continue reading, that what was written and engraven on stones, again, referring to the Ten Commandments, okay, so you can't just say, oh yeah, no, it, it just applies to the other things. No, this is very clear. What was written and engraven on stones it actually calls it the ministry of death. <laughs> and I've easily got over a hundred more of them I could show you if we had the time to try and help you see that I'm, you know, I'm not just misinterpreting the scripture. It's kind of like one of those things where once you become aware of this, as you start to read through your Bible again, you're like, man, how did I, how did I miss that? I mean, that's how it was for me. I thought growing up, I was supposed to try and live by the Ten Commandments. And, and what I didn't realize is that I was so sin conscious, I was trying not to do things that it was stirring up sin. It was drawing me towards it. And, you know, again, if, if this is all new to you, here's a few more that you can write down and look up later. Romans 3.20, Romans 8.2, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 2.21, Galatians 5.18. And you know what? Just to be clear, I'm not saying that the law no longer has a purpose, okay? It does have a purpose. Because if you sin once, you're guilty of all of them. Under the law, you don't get to just have a 99.9 .9 percentage rate. That 0.01 percentage of sin that you do makes you guilty of all of them. So the law's purpose is to bring you to the point where you're like, man, I can't do this. I need a savior. Okay, that is the purpose of the law. So what I'm sharing, what the writer of Hebrews was sharing, is that we as believers in Christ aren't to try and live by the law anymore. That there's a better way. So here we go. What I see in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, are five things that we need to look at. So here it is, verse 4. For it is impossible for those, and here's the first one, who were once enlightened, and, number two, have tasted the heavenly gift, and have, number three, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and four, have tasted the good word of God, and the, number five, powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now we're going to look at these five points that we see here, but before we even do that, 
it's important to see the overall point that these verses are making. Verse 4 just said, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and then fast forward to verse 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. So first, these verses are clearly showing us that someone cannot be born again again. Okay, you can't lose your salvation and then become born again. And then you lose your salvation and then become born again. Okay, like a light switch, on off, on off. You know, you, you can't do that. Someone doesn't lose their salvation every time they sin. Now, this is really important right here. Your works can't get you saved and your works can't cause you to lose your salvation either. A second overall point is that these verses are showing that someone can, quote unquote, lose their salvation. Because why would verse 6 say, if, you know, which the word if is talking about a choice. So if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, okay? You don't fall away or get back again if you never had it in the first place, okay? So we can lose our salvation. But just to be clear, it's not like losing your keys where it's an accident, okay? This is very intentional. And that's what we're getting to here. So what we're seeing is that there are five prerequisites to someone losing their salvation. So point one is that we have to be enlightened. And what this is describing is that you had to be made aware or enlightened by being drawn to God. John 6, 44 in the A part of that verse and 65 in the B part of that verse, the end of that, and this is Jesus speaking, says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then the tail end of verse 65, therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 in the, in the B part of that, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So us being enlightened, being drawn by the Holy Spirit to God is the first prerequisite to losing one's salvation. Point two, it says that we have to have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, I believe this is talking about a genuine born-again experience, receiving the free gift of salvation. Not just, you know, repeating the words like a parrot, but having a genuine heart change. And might I add, just to be very clear, I know I've said it a bunch of times already, but it's not your good that gets you saved, and it's not your sin that causes you to lose it. So we must have a genuine born-again experience because the truth is, you can't lose what you never had. The third prerequisite to losing one's salvation is point three. We must have at one time become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe this is referring to someone being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because for every born-again believer, there are two additional baptism experiences available. The most common one or the most well-known one is water baptism. But the second is the baptism in the Holy Spirit otherwise known as the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. So just to be clear, water baptism and the baptism in the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. Okay, that's why Hebrews 6, 2, when describing the elementary principles of Christ, mentioned the doctrine of baptisms, plural, okay, with an S on the end. And I'm sure as I say that, there are some of you out there thinking, well, what about the verse that says there's only one baptism? And that's in Ephesians 4, 5. And yes, I'm not contradicting that verse. That's because in context, that verse is referring to one baptism into the body of Christ. If you look at the verses prior, it talks about bearing with one another in love, 
being eager to keep unity and that there's one body and one spirit. And I know we already mentioned this verse, but 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So this verse is very clear that we are baptized into the body of Christ when we receive the free gift of righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus. So to say that there's only one baptism wouldn't make any sense <laughs> because most believers at the least believe in water baptism. So if we're baptized into Christ the moment that we become born again and then separate from that, we do water baptism, that right there is two. Okay, so that throws out that idea of just one. So again, I believe point three is referring to the baptism in the Holy Spirit not to be confused with being baptized in the body of Christ or water baptism. Now, if you don't see it that way, but rather it's just a continuation of point two, you know, I'm not going to fuss with you. I don't have a problem with that. However, when we get to point five, the only way it can happen is if someone has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I don't believe it would make sense to list the same thing twice when the other four are clearly different. Because I know some of you may be thinking like, grammatically speaking, it uses the word and between point two, you know, have tasted the heavenly gift. And then it says, and have, you know, point three, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. But the problem with that is, is that it does that with all of them. Okay. It's kind of like a grocery list, you know, get milk and eggs and bacon and toast and fruit. You know, <laughs> you know, none of those things are the same thing. And I'm sure there's a better way of saying that, but hopefully you see what I'm talking about. But again, if you see that differently, I don't believe it's that big of a deal because of what we'll see in point five. So let's get to point four. It says that we have to have tasted the good word of God. Again, the point with quote unquote losing one's salvation is that it is possible, but that it's very difficult. Because this point is showing that we must have a degree of understanding from the word of God. We're not just talking about head knowledge here, okay, where we're just able to recite some facts or, or we've memorized some Bible verses, you know, and we can repeat them like a parrot. There must be some living rhema revelation taking place from the time someone is spent in the Word of God. Think about the parable Jesus taught in Mark chapter 4. He describes four types of ground that the seed fell on, and the ground represents someone's heart, and the seed is the Word of God or the Bible. And out of the four types of ground, there are only one where the seed really grew and yielded a crop. But with the second and the third types of ground, the stony ground and the ground with the thorns, the seed did begin to grow, but both didn't last long. And this was due to a number of things. But it says that the stony ground received the word with gladness. Okay, they were happy to hear about it. But there wasn't true revelation knowledge from them diving in the word themselves. And the thorny ground... It got choked out by the cares of this world and their desires for money or whatever that the world could offer, okay? And just to try and give some application, you know, they probably enjoyed when Sundays came around, but it didn't become living to them where it caused them to place the Word of God as a priority in their lives. Hence, as a result, they really didn't gain much understanding from the Bible. And that's why point four is so important. A prerequisite to someone renouncing their faith is that they had to at one point been like the seed on the good ground where they produce 30, 60, or 100 fold. You can't lose your salvation if you're just a casual Christian. 
And really, what are we describing here? We're describing maturity. And that takes us to what I think is the whopper of them all, point five. And it continues on with the wording from point four. Point five is that they have to have tasted the powers of the age to come. So to me, this is the big one. That once we gain understanding on what this means, it really blows several differing opinions out of the water. And I know I haven't even been real clear on what tasted the powers of the age to come means. But the truth is, a lot of believers don't even believe that this is for today. They believe it passed away with the last apostle. Even though in the word, it wasn't just the 12 disciples operating this. Okay, you see 70 sent out. And then you see 500 who were present when Jesus ascended into heaven in Mark chapter 16. And that's where you see Jesus commanding every believer to go out. That signs will follow. That believers will cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. Which is referring to speaking in tongues that we receive when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, He also talks about how believers will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Which again, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2, just before what we're reading, it calls the laying on of hands an elementary principle of Christ. But how many believers have ever heard a message on the laying on of hands and what its purpose is? Because again, it's listed as an elementary or beginner principle of Christ. So again, just to be clear, before I even talk about point five, in order for someone to have the opportunity to lose their salvation, they have to have already fulfilled the previous four prerequisites that we discussed. So here it is, point five. What it's telling us is that someone has to have operated in the gifts of the Spirit in order to qualify for, quote-unquote, losing their salvation. Now, this is not saying that we're just to know where it talks about the gifts of the Spirit in the Bible. Okay, it says that we have to have operated in them. And just real quick, when I've tried to do a little bit of research of why others believe what they believe, I don't really see much of a argument against Hebrews 6. Okay, I've heard that some think it's like a hypothetical thing, that this is just a hypothetical example, and I don't believe that to be true. Another thing that I've heard is that People try to say that the words enlightened or how it says tasted a couple times, that tasted the heavenly gift or tasted the good word of God, that what those are referring to are someone just having a little bit, like someone's just had a taste, you know, just let me have a sip of the the cup, you know, don't let me drink the whole thing, but just let me have a sip. And you know what? I, I just, I totally disagree with that. But again, it's all good. So again, It's not saying that someone should just be able to know in the Bible where the gifts of the Spirit are listed. It's saying that we have to have operated in them. And, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, just in case you've never heard that before, it's not to be confused with the fruits of the Spirit, okay? The fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are two different things. The fruit of the Spirit are listed in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, And those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the gifts of the Spirit are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. And we'll start with verse 1. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. This makes me think about how in Hebrews 6, you know, we've been reading primarily Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. But at the beginning of that, and I made mention of it already, how 
the writer talked about the elementary or the beginner principles of Christ. Here, Paul is saying that he doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant of the gifts of the Spirit. Another version in place of the word ignorant uses the word uninformed. Okay, Paul doesn't want us to be uninformed. He wants us to understand what they are. God desires not only for every believer to have knowledge of them, but to walk in them. And that's not so that you and I get glory. It's so that God gets the glory. But this goes back to point three. In order to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, you have to have had the Holy Spirit come upon you. You must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So here we go. Let's read what the gifts of the Spirit are. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So what we see is that there are nine gifts of the Spirit listed here. And I'm not going to discuss them. The point is, in order for someone to lose their salvation, having operated in the gifts of the Spirit is one of the criteria that must be met in order to do so. And again, what are we describing here? There has to be a level of maturity, okay? You can't just lose your salvation. Someone has to be mature enough to understand what they're doing. Because again, my belief is that someone can lose their salvation. However, it's very difficult to do so. Now, again, I'm not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't believe. You should believe what you believe, not because I believe it, or because the denomination you grew up in says something is a certain way. No, you should believe what you believe because you see it in the Word and you're convinced that it's true. So on that note, to help you decide for yourself, here's a few verses that support the once saved, always saved belief. And just to be clear, I am not in disagreement with any of these verses. These are scriptures. They're not personal opinions. So if it's scripture, I wholeheartedly believe them to be true. And the cool thing about these verses is that they bring about an assurance that you're never going to send away your salvation or you know, you're not going to accidentally mess up and lose what Jesus bought and paid for you to have. However, with what we just looked at in Hebrews 6, along with my understanding of the overall scope of the Bible, I simply don't agree with coming to the conclusion that these verses are saying that once someone is saved, they'll always be saved. End of discussion. And the way that I found some of these verses, just to you know, kind of make it easier on myself, was that I looked up some of the more popular pastors who believe that once saved, always saved is the correct way. And I took some of the most common scriptures they used and put them together here so you could see them. Now, I'm not going over all the verses that I saw, but one thing I noticed as I was looking up these individual pastors or the denominational groups that have this belief is that most of them, again, I'm not saying all believe this way, 
but the ones I saw in my limited search also supported other doctrines that I don't agree with. Not saying they're terrible believers. I'm just saying I just don't agree with those doctrines. One that I noticed that I don't believe to be true was a misinterpretation of predestination. Now, I do believe that the Bible supports that we as believers were predestined to be safe. However, being predestined doesn't mean that God made some to be born again and some he made to be damned to hell, <laughs> okay? I believe you'd have to throw out a lot of scripture to come to that conclusion. Scriptures that talk about how God is no respecter of persons. Because if God made someone who'd never have the chance to receive salvation but were destined to hell, that would make him a respecter of persons. Meaning he gave some the opportunity and others he didn't give the opportunity to. Okay, that just doesn't make any sense. You'd also have to throw out the scriptures that talk about how it's God's will for all to come to know him. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever, okay, emphasis on the whoever, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If eternal life wasn't available for every person, then John 3.16 would be a lie. So again, I, I agree with predestination, but predestination simply means that God, because he knows the end from the beginning, knows which ones of us will receive Jesus and those who won't. And those he already knows will receive Jesus, they are predestined. So to go along with predestination, another common belief among those who believe in once saved, always saved, is this doctrine of God's sovereignty. That God is sovereign. And yes, I do believe that God is sovereign, but not in the way that religion tries to use it. If by sovereign we mean that he is first in rank, he is supreme, he is above all, he knows the end from the beginning, then yes, I absolutely agree with that. Okay, he is sovereign. But the church has taken the word sovereignty and turned it into what I like to call the extreme sovereignty of God. Where everything God wants to happen, it just automatically happens. <laughs> that there's nothing that's ever happened that God didn't quote-unquote allow or want to happen. Almost like he and the devil are working hand in hand. And that is a lie. Because if you believe that, that would attribute every rape, every murder, every plane crash, every child abduction, every life-threatening illness like cancer and all that junk, that would attribute all of that to God. But the truth is, it's the devil who is the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Okay, it is not God. Here's how sovereign God is. God is so sovereign that he set up the system where he works through us. Okay, that was his choice. And what I'm referring to is after the fall of man, Jesus took back the keys of authority that Adam and Eve gave away to the devil. And what he did was he in turn gave it to the church, which the church is you and I. We are his hands and feet. That's the system that God set up. And God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Yes, but the end of that verse says, according to the power that works in us. So it is not God who controls all the crap that happens to us in our lives. The truth is God desires only good for us. And the last thing I noticed that ties in these last two is the argument of free will. Because agree with me or not, God has given us free will. You know, I just mentioned Adam and Eve. <laughs> if we weren't given free will, then sin would have never entered the world. God made everything good, okay? He didn't make some things good and some things bad. No, everything was good at creation. 
But Adam and Eve used their free will and made the choice to disobey. God in Deuteronomy said, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And then he gave us a choice and he said, choose life. Okay. We have a choice to choose life or not. He has given us free will. And those three things, again, were what I saw as a common thread between those who believe in the once saved, always saved. I believe that's really important to understand as we look at some of the scriptures we're going to be looking at. Again, I agree with them completely. And I believe they are vitally important to having an assurance that we can't just up and sin away our salvation. My point is, and my belief is, that yes, it's crucial to know that once we receive Jesus, that we're his, okay? (laughs) There's no doubt in that. But we still have a choice. Again, someone can lose their salvation, but it's very difficult to do so. There has to be a level of maturity. So here's some scriptures to support once saved, always saved. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, (laughs) this verse is awesome. God's love for us is crazy good, okay? But even with all the external things that are mentioned, whether it's angels or principalities or any other, you know, emphasis on the other, nothing else can remove us from being in Christ. However, I do believe it's very difficult, but it is possible for us to remove ourselves from being in Christ. That is, if we've fulfilled all the requirements we just went over in Hebrews 6. Ephesians 1, 13-14 In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So this verse is awesome, okay? It's telling us that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as our guarantee and we now belong to God. Another verse like that is Ephesians 4, verse 30 in the B part of that. It tells us that we're sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22 Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So it is crucial for born-again believers to have the understanding that their born-again spirits have been sealed and cannot be contaminated by our flesh, our sins, our mistakes. John 10, 28-29, and this is Jesus speaking. But we're going to start in verse 26 just to help out with the understanding. Verse 26 says, But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So here we are, verse 28 through 29, and here's what we're looking at. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So yes, when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are given eternal life right now. And even though our body will one day give out, 
our born-again spirit will continue on. And so if you see your spirit as the real part of you, who you really are, your spirit will never die, okay? You're going to step right into the presence of God when your body gives out. So yes, I do believe what this verse is saying, that there isn't anyone who can snatch us out of the Father's hand. But just because someone else can't steal us away from the Father, I don't believe from that that we can just jump to the conclusion that we can never, in our own free will, turn away from God ourselves. Jesus doesn't force us to get saved, neither does he force us to stay saved. Okay, so if someone fits the criteria we covered from Hebrews 6, even though it's very difficult to do so, I do believe someone can lose their salvation and they'll never get it back. So to end, I just want to be clear that, you know, there's plenty more scriptures out there that you can study on this topic. And that's for either side of the aisle that you stand on, okay? Whether you believe in once saved, always saved, or you believe you can lose your salvation, okay? There's plenty out there. And like I said in the beginning, I don't believe that this topic is one that we should be spending buku amounts of time studying, you know, only then to go out and argue and debate with others who see things differently than us. That shouldn't be our goal. However, you know, that being said, if you feel Holy Spirit is leading you to study out this topic a little further, then definitely, you know, I would encourage you to be obedient and to do that. Because there's a lot more understanding to be had. I've got a lot more to learn about this topic. You know, personally, I heard this preached nine or so years ago for the first time. And it's taken me this long to reach the point where I felt comfortable sharing what I believe to be true. Because ultimately, the goal with this episode was to present you with some of the information and then you decide what you believe. Thanks for listening and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.